Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. I talk to the trees. Stop and hear what I say. Come on around back, Arizona. Saturday morning, 8 o'clock. The Outdoor Living Hour of Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. If you've got something in your landscape or yard, you can join the conversation at one 767 4348 one rosie for you You can also send text questions to 411-923 or email us at info at rosieonthehouse.com. If you need to snap a picture for plant or insect identification, you can send that there and we can see if we can't help you in that way, shape, or form, if you're following along in your annual Rosie on the House Homeowner Handbook, you see now today, June 10th, we're talking trees. And the tree of the month that we usually start with uh, when we talk trees is the Arizona mesquite. And we've got Justin Ronner of Agriscaping and Studio joining us. Welcome back to the broadcast. And uh, when I saw Arizona mesquite, is there an Arizona mesquite? Is there a New Mexico mesquite? Is there a... Uh, Mexico mesquite is there a Texas mesquite I've never I don't know that I've ever seen Arizona in front of the word mesquite before it's just mesquite well I think the one they're talking about there is the velvet mesquite so that's the one that's most uh akin to Arizona that we find most often there's also a screw bean mesquite that's also pretty native to here um, but most of the other varieties aren't from around here they've they've kind of been brought in by cattle and, uh, and other things and it's uh some of them have become quite invasive. So if you see one with really massive thorns on it, that one's not from around here. The velvet mesquite, a little softer, has a smaller thorn to it. Wonderful bean, wonderful tree. Uh, as long as you keep it away from your pool, you know, it's a great tree. <laughs> now, these <clears throat> all mesquite trees, they, my wife always uh, jokes about it. She's like, you know, how are you supposed to get shade under those little tiny leaves? Like, you know, mulberries, they're, they're huge leaves. You get lots of shade. How am I supposed to get shade of these little tiny leaves? Well, it's just, uh, it's leaves in numbers. I mean, in the millions, you know, on, on one of these mesquite trees, it's like they, the way they fan out, they create a pretty heavy, dense shade. And I think one of the things we'll be talking about today is actually prepping for our monsoon season. And one of the mesquite tree is probably the, the number one tree you see toppled over in people's front yards or backyards and into people's houses. And it has a lot to do with a couple of things, how we water them and then how we trim them. And this is the best month to be trimming those trees in order to prepare them for the monsoon so they don't act like an umbrella and, uh, and yank themselves out of the ground or break off limbs and, and end up uh, causing more harm than good. For the most part, we love the mesquite. And we love the shade that it can provide in a really quick amount of time. Uh, we love that it's an evergreen. You know, we, we love that it, uh, the, the smell of that, that tree is actually kind of fun. It, it's one of the, the cornerstone trees of the Sonoran Desert. And so if you want that Sonoran Desert look, you're going to need to get some velvet mesquite, maybe a couple screw bean mesquites uh, in your landscape to really make sure that you're, you're, you're holding true to that form. So they are evergreen, like you said. Yeah. How big will they get? So they can get upwards of 50 feet tall. Uh, I mean, I've got three uh, velvet mesquites in my yard that are, are they're probably 40 feet tall, and they're they're quite big around. I mean, these are these are 20, 30 year old trees, and you know I can't hug around them. You know, it's a big base, wonderful, beautiful kind of gnarly, twisted, massive branches. But the only reason they've lasted that long is because they were deep watered and they're trimmed on an annual basis to keep them working right. How long will they live just out in the desert? 
as a volunteer? Out in the desert as a volunteer, we've seen trees that are upwards of 150 years old out there. Uh, I mean, they can get very large and stay big, but they'll look more like bushes in their native space. And I think that's kind of where we were kind of getting to when we're talking about the monsoons and we see a lot of them blown over because we take them from their native environment. We put them here because they're fast growing. And like you said, they've they've got thousands of, even though they're tiny leaves, there's thousands of them. And they're a great shade. Yep. Uh, but we trim them to be not how they are in the wild. And that's where a lot of the problems come from. We, we, exactly. And I think one of the other key things is how we water them. A lot of people are watering them really shallow. They'll even put them in their grass. And so if you're shallow watering or you have a lot of other plants around it that are shallow watered, uh, those roots aren't going to go deep. They're not going to hold the tree down. So the whole canopy is just going to rip right out of the ground when those winds come. And it'll act, again, more like an umbrella. And it'll catch all that wind. And with real shallow roots, then that whole thing just rips right out of the ground. Really easy to do, and you see it all over the place. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the the arborists, you know, they're, they're on standby from once the winds start through about the mid-September. It's it's a busy season. Yep, uh, that's uh, the mesquite tree uh, is the number one tree we've seen ground up in our mulch products that we have around here, and that's that's the reason right there is because a lot of mishandled trees or uh, just during the pruning season when we're pruning those things out. And mesquites are pretty clean. There's, I don't know if the ground-up creosote has any problems, but I know in the wild they kind of off-gas and protect themselves to keep other plants from growing around them. You know, there's nothing you know, creosote or greasy-wise with a mesquite that you have to worry about for yard application no, on a mulch. I, yeah, I think uh, the ranchers, old ranchers around here in Arizona would call them the devil tree, the devil with roots. And part of the reason they call it that is because those things would pop up in their fields or in their meadows and stuff where they're trying to feed the feed the cattle, and they just start popping up volunteers all over the place because and the roots would actually suck up all the the ground moisture and wouldn't allow any of the native grasses to really grow. So it's the roots that are actually part of the problem. It's not the waxiness or the juggalones that would cause other plants to not be able to grow under them. It's the fact that it, it sucks up the water actually a little faster than any of the other plants could. And so another reason to just keep the deep watering habit, we love to make sure we get a, a good stem of water line under the soil level and water those trees actually below the normal level of everything else. We don't like top watering our mesquites personally. I like putting a, about an 18-inch pipe down in the ground and then putting a bubbler or putting a drip down underneath that and allowing it to force those roots much deeper down into the soil to ensure that I've got a good solid root base, but then I still can grow other things up above it and that aren't going to compete. And explain that pipe, because I've actually seen uh, products, manufacturers that make something similar to that. I can't recall the name off the top of my head, but instead of just putting the drip on, spaghetti line on top and letting it soak down, you know, you're, yeah. you're getting it seriously subsurface irrigation. Subsurface, yeah. They've got you know 12-inch, 18-inch, even 4-foot long, uh, they call it tree watering spikes. You can actually hammer them into the ground if your ground's soft enough to do that in. Uh, but another thing we do, we just get a four inch, uh, perforated pipe and we just take a section of those perforated pipes that are usually used, used as a drain tile to, or, uh, to, to move water away from a house. We'll use that and we'll just make a little core drill with a, an auger bit. And then we'll throw that in the ground, poke a hole in the side of it. And, and we'll actually put a little grate cap on it and then put the drip line down inside that, inside that pipe. And then that just ensures that the water is going deeper down into the soil first 
and not uh, allowing that tree to kind of crown at the top and surface the roots. Because that's one thing you'll find with mesquite trees. They are very good at surfacing roots and looking for surface water. And the reason out in the in the desert they do so good, there's not a lot of surface water. So that's right. you, you don't see those surface roots out in the, the desert. I mean, maybe you might find an occasional one here or there or along a sandy wash or right. some natural spring that's out there. But generally speaking... You know, those roots are deep because they're they're searching. They're searching for that water as it as it slowly moves through this clay soil we we have out here in the desert. So, yeah. which retains water very well I mean, after a rain. It doesn't look like, it, especially on top, it dries up. But when you start digging, it's amazing how well it retains water below the surface once you start getting down there. That's right. And, and as many of you have probably noticed, the month of June is historically very very dry here in Arizona. And these mesquite historically trees, hot too, but and it historically hot. It's, usually, it's supposed to be the hottest month, but it has. I mean, even this morning when we went to leave the house, Remy's like, "It's cold." I'm like, "It's it's 68. It's it's just it's. I wouldn't call it cold, but, <laughs> but it's definitely abnormal. It's Arizona cold, right? That's, That's Arizona right. cold. Yeah. So it, when when the seeds sprout, usually in March around here, you know these these trees as they grow into trees in the desert they'll get a little bit of good rain good soaking rain in you know march and april and then they got nothing for like three months and so they're like well how do these things survive it's because their roots are growing about the same rate as the water is percolating down through the soil because it's moving so slow through the soil and so those roots will grow and dive deep but if they're watered shallowly too often then they don't get that deep rooting they just start spreading out on that surface and that's a problem later on especially around block walls, things like that. I mean, I wouldn't put a mesquite tree 15 feet from anything, you know, just to make sure that it's uh, it's got its own space to grow. If you want it to grow into maturity, you know, it needs a little bit more space than other typical trees. And a mesquite shoot does not look like a mesquite when it first comes out. You know, the, the petal rod, it looks more like a, a beanstalk. That's coming. right. <laughs> and it, that's that's what it is. It's actually a Fabaceae family. It's a, it's, it's a bean tree, and so it definitely looks like a little a little bean sprout, and then it puts out these tiny little sprouting leaves, almost look like little mimosa leaves, and that's how you usually will know. And they're still tough to differentiate between a, a, a mesquite versus a Palo Verde tree when they're you know just a couple weeks old, but uh, they start showing their, their colors a little bit later. And we're talking about primarily the velvet mesquite, but there are varieties, other varieties of mesquite. You mentioned the Chilean that, by observation, seems to be one that's more common in nurseries. For some unknown reason. <laughs> well, I think mainly because they call it a thornless. It's a thornless mesquite, very fast growing, but that one can be relatively invasive. That one actually even has a more invasive root structure, I would say, than the velvet mesquite. And so you want to be be careful with that, be cognizant of what you're purchasing. It also doesn't really produce much of a bean. And so for all you uh, mesquite bean enthusiasts out there, if you're really looking for a tree that's going to produce a good bean and some good protein for yourself, if you want to grind that down and make a good a mesquite bean flower, well, then you, you definitely want to go with more of the the native variety, that velvet mesquite, or even the a hybrid type that comes out of Texas called a honey mesquite. And those would be your two varieties that would do best for that type of production. If that's what you're looking for. A gigantic tree, a ginormous tree, a humongous tree. Now, unless I'm wrong, mesquites don't really have color. You know, we've got the ironwood that'll have a purple. We've got the Palo Verde that, you know, the yellow. 
mesquites, they, they just give us the beans, right? Well, no, actually, in uh, about a month and a half ago or so, that's when all the flowers started booming. It's, it's kind of a puffy, puffball kind of looking thing, and they're yellow. They, so they they'll turn yellow, yellow, but it's a paler yellow than the Palo Verde, which is a bright yellow, you know, and it's, it's a paler yellow, palish green, so you don't notice it as much. But, boy, when those things drop on the ground, you'll notice them real well. <laughs> so that's the messiest time of the year. You got about a month of mess from a mesquite tree with also the, the little, it almost, it almost looks like pine needles coming off of these mesquite tree, trees. And that's the stalk, that's the, the, the stem of what the flower was growing on. It looks like a pine needle, about, about four to six inches long. And they just start stacking up on the ground and create almost like a pine needle effect. Uh, pine needle mulch they make for themselves out in the wild. And if you have a pool, there's something magnetic about it that it just draws to it. <laughs> yeah, they, they're searching for water, it, it would appear. And that, that was definitely a, a pain we had over the last month, had to redo our whole filter system and everything because they, they go through all those little baskets. They'll go right through those. So you got to get more of a, a much finer mesh basket or liners that you can get that look like a pantyhose that you stick inside during that month to make sure that you can filter out those smaller leaves and things because they are definitely smaller than your traditional stuff. The mesquite, our tree of the month, but we're also talking tree hazards as well. We kind of <laughs> hit on it a little bit coming into the monsoons and what uh, the mesquite can be vulnerable to, but that's not the only tree out there that falls over when the, when the storms come. That's right. I mean, a lot of pretty much any tree not watered well or, or trimmed well is going to have some challenges with the monsoons. And uh, again, you want them to be deep watered. Ideally, when you're watering your trees, you want them to be watered very deep once a month. And that's about it. Once a month is, is, is the kind of watering that trees around here are going to need to hold themselves up through those, those monsoon winds. Uh, but most people, they water them every day. And, uh, and that's, that's not a happy situation because what will happen is that you got shallow roots. And then what's, what's also going on above is that the canopy is getting very, very dense. And there's a lot of, so they're really top heavy. And then people will trim them up from the bottom and then leave this umbrella looking tree to create a lot of shade, which isn't a bad thing. Obviously here in the summertime, you want the shade, but you don't want it so much shade that the wind can't really move through it. And so that's why we love to trim them out this time of year. We're, we're going to trim out about one third and thin it. So it's not just trimming it back. We don't want to trim it back as much as we want to thin it out and allow more movement of air through the tree canopy so that it won't be ripped out of the ground or up if we're trying to make it a tree that we can sit underneath walk underneath shade if you trim it up like you were talking earlier you still you have to thin it or it just that's all that much more air to catch it and you know help tilt it over exactly if you're wanting to do a canopy tree this time of year i like letting my canopy actually kind of arc down closer to the ground but in order to pull that off and still keep a healthy tree, I've got to thin out a lot of the branching on the interior. And mesquites are notorious for creating a network of branches that actually overlap. And it becomes uh, unclimbable if you love climbing trees like I do. You know, it becomes unclimbable and you can't really get up inside that tree. And it also makes a dense little area where you get a lot more birds and other things that are trying to grow, which adds a lot more weight to the, to the tree itself. And so it's just wise to thin that out. Never more than one-third do you want to trim in a year. Uh, just trim out about a third. Never go more than that. You don't want to kill the tree. Um, but I wouldn't really go less than that right now just to make sure that you can get that canopy opened back up and you can really allow that air to flow. And one-third is, is actually a significant amount. It's funny. I, 
I don't know that I've ever gotten perfectly to one third, but it's hard for me to keep going sometimes when I look at my leaf or my, my limb pile. I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. I've, I've got nothing left of my tree, <laughs> but they recover quick. Well, and what I would say, a little tip on that as you're getting up inside the tree, I like to start from the interior of that tree. And I'm going to, if, if I'm trying to create a canopy mesquite or any canopy type tree, I'm going to only cut off bottom three branches, main branches that are low to the ground. I'm going to cut three each year until I get to the canopy height that I'm looking for. I don't want to do more than three each year just to help make the base nice and large and to really strengthen the tree. Because another thing that happens if you trim up too many and try to get your canopy early, you're going to have a very spindly uh, trunk of the tree. And so we've also seen trees that'll just snap at the top. And they're snapping at the top because they've been trimmed a little too tight too early as they were growing up and didn't create that base width and the, the girth of that trunk in order to to hold up that canopy top. And so three major branches each year as you move it up to the canopy, and then you're working on thinning the rest out. And that can apply not only to mesquites, but many other trees as well. Correct. It's, it's, a, it's a general rule for most trees. If you want to create a nice canopy shade tree, same rules apply. You know, try only to trim no more than three major branches from the bottom and never trim more than one-third the tree at a time. And... That's if, you know, we're starting from, you know, a small tree. A lot of the trees you get from the nursery, they're in boxes and they're, they've been trimmed. You know, yeah. they, they, they already come very narrow trunk base, top canopy, just for people that want, you know, immediate. Or if they're trying to make a specific spec for an HOA or street improvement, a lot of the ones come already very, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, very, very dressed. They're already dressed for dressed for <laughs> success. They, a lot of them are, and if, if there is a concern that those might topple, especially if you're planting some of these big trees right now, one thing we've done is we've actually anchored the trees into the ground a little bit more. So we'll actually uh, add in uh, spikes that are actually – we drive into the ground below where the base of that tree would have been, and we will actually put uh, anchors that kind of hold downs for the entire root ball to just ensure that that, that root ball is not going to pivot or move. Uh, when we do things above canopies or above uh, like second floor decks, we actually wire those to the surrounding structure to make sure that they don't topple over. So there's a lot of interesting things you got to think about. If you'd like to join the conversation, talk with Justin Ron or Agriscaping, one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE for you or text 411-923. What do trees wear at pool parties? Swimming trunks. That's you. <laughs> well, let's talk about the concept of agriscaping. I really like that term and kind of what you've merged together here. It makes a lot of sense, especially for Arizona. Well, for Arizona, we, we have one thing lacking right now, and that's diversity of food crops. And most of our food is traveling uh, on average 1,500 miles to the state of Arizona, and that's the fresh stuff. Uh, and so if you, do, if you don't feel fresh after 1,500 miles, your food certainly doesn't feel that way either. And uh, so bringing that food closer to home, integrating food into your landscape 
to not only beautify it, but pr produce with it. That's really what agriscaping is about, bringing together the best of that productive agriculture with the best of that ornamental, beautiful, HOA-approved landscape kind of style uh, is, is what we do at agriscaping. And we teach people how to do it, but we also do a lot of it for others. And that's, that's really a big growing facet of our company is doing the installations. We got, contracted, we got our contractor's license a few years ago. I think we're about ready to become Rosie certified, if I remember <laughs> right. We, we're starting to get to the point that we can actually qualify to be part of your amazing group. So I, that's, that's something we're excited about. But, um, but that's a big piece of what we do is we're now doing a lot of consulting for people so they can do it themselves, educating them, but then also doing installations for them, even pools and water features and integrating rainwater harvesting and gray water harvesting. We want people to optimize their water usage and to really be ultimately productive with their, with their landscape. And when you're talking about education, uh, one of the ones I had uh, kind of caught my attention, I printed out, you had a the Ultra Productive Chicken Workshop coming up. Yeah, and that's uh, with our guy Chris. It's a homesteading style of doing chickens. I mean, if you want to raise chickens and you've got an area that you can do that in, a lot of the municipalities here and even Maricopa County are opening up to allow chickens, allow more productive-type pets. And so, yeah, we got a class coming up. It's a webinar. I think that's this, this next week. And so if you go to agriscaping.com, you can find uh, a place to then sign up for our webinars, be able to just jump in and learn more about Ultra Productive Chickens with Chris. And I've got it uh, on up on screen at June 20th, 6 to 7 p.m. And like you said, it's a webinar, so you don't have to go out. You can do this from home or on your smartphone. I have a chicken story. Uh-oh. That includes a mesquite tree. Well, tell us more. <laughs> a regular listener of the show, I had her on the phone this week, and she harvests her mesquite beans mm -hmm. and grinds the flour and is, is going to participate in the harvesting event that's coming up here soon. And she said, I don't bake with the flour. I sprinkle it on top of a baked chicken with my seasoning. And she said, it makes the best baked chicken on the planet. Well, I can believe that. I haven't you know tried what? it myself. That, doesn't that, that sound good? good? A nice a nice spice rub and with, with some mesquite, with some mesquite. Bean. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, that actually sounds quite nice. That uh, would that, work out that's, right. That's the next way I'm cooking a chicken. Yeah, as that roast, it'll get a little bit oh. crispy and stuff on there. You got that. Oh, yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah, mesquite bean, great. It's a great food. Uh, it is a great food. The Native Americans out here, that's one of their staples. It makes my favorite tortilla. Oh, tortilla. That's one. I'd love to try a tortilla. Are you making them anytime soon, uh, well, Rosie, I, um, I buy them. You buy them. All right. So I, I need to know where to get those. They're Tucson. professionals for Tucson. that. Tucson. You got to go down to the old Pueblo. Old Pueblo. Okay. Next time I'm in Tucson, I'm going to be looking around for that. Now, on the ultra-productive chicken and talking about eating chicken, usually your yard chicken isn't a great meat chicken. I mean, if you're talking like total sustainability and, uh, you know, at the end of the chicken's laying cycle – the laying chicken and the meat chickens aren't really a, a great crossover. Not so much. I mean, if you're if you're raising chickens for food, uh, most people are doing it for the eggs, especially with the price of eggs in the last year. You know, and it, it's skyrocketing there. But yeah, you're right. What they call a spent hen after it's really laid its eggs, the meat is very tough and very oily, not to the palate of most people's you know tender-breasted chicken. It's pretty much like all dark meat by that time, and uh, and they are really good though for roasting and making a, a more of a chicken broth that's a real good broth chicken 
And so if you want to be able to store up some chicken broth, you want some bone broths, those kind of things, a spent hen can make, make a good broth for sure. But if you're trying to do a meat bird, you're looking more for a Cornish cross is what we're usually looking at. Those things, they grow up so big, uh, so fast, the, you know, they're ready within 12 weeks to, to harvest from just a little tiny chick all the way up. So that's a little different type. You feed them a little different, a lot more corn uh, to get them growing really fast. And that's kind of how those ones roll. And when you say ready by 12 weeks, I mean, ready or not, because they get so big and so fat, they can't even move. Right. So a lot you, of they're, they're sitting down <laughs> most of the time. They're sitting down. You, you want to put that food as close to their beak as possible, and they'll just sit there and keep eating. And and they're they're crazy. It's like, I, you know, I love the Samoan culture because they're big boned and big, you know, they're big meaty people. And that's kind of the, they're the Samoans of the chicken breeds, you know, <laughs> is the, the, some of these crosses. They're beautiful chickens, and uh, and but they're definitely more for growing meat than anything else. I did that once, and I thought, you know, I, I, it's a lot of work. Um, and then, like, for the meat size for a bird, it's pretty decent. But I'm like, man, a cow's a lot better. You know, you, I, I, I can fill the whole freezer on one cow. One cow, These yep. little tiny chickens, this is taking forever. This is a- <laughs> It'd take you about 240 chickens to equal one cow. Yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a few, a little more harvesting, as they would say. That's a little bit tougher to fill a, fill a freezer. But the chickens are uh, an easy cross. I mean, there are what they call dual breed type chickens that, that you can do both with. And it's usually the males that will be harvested out for meat. Females then let them lay the eggs. And those are the bigger varieties, kind of the bar rocks, the uh, um, Rhode Island reds. Those are some of the varieties that are kind of what they call kind of a dual, dual purpose type chicken. Do you have a place you like to get them? Uh, you know, the tractor supplies have been really good at bringing in some good varieties. They, they used to be just a kind of one-stop one shop for only one variety of chicken, but now they've started to diversify some of the breeds that they get. And so I like looking at that as an option, um, but then a lot of them will just get them shipped in. So if you want more than 25, then you want to start looking to the online opportunities, you know, like a privet nursery out of New Mexico, something that's a little bit closer. So there's some other places that you can literally, they'll ship them to you and you'll get a call from the the, the local mail, mail, mail station, and they'll say, we've got some chicks for you. And I just make sure I pick up that phone call and not my wife, and so she's not <laughs> wondering what kind of chicks I'm picking up over at the, at the mail station. But it's the chicks, they'll come in the mail, and they're, they're day-old chickens, and you raise them up yourself, but you got to make sure you got a food source nearby. Tractor supplies are also great sources for that as well. And you had mentioned privet. The most success we've had with any of our chickens have all been – from feed stores that get their chickens from Privet out of New Mexico. Yep, there you go. And if you want more than 25, you're probably better off just going direct. You'll get a little bit better price point, and you get a little bit more variety that you can pick from. So you can pick and choose from different stocks and then have them gathered together. And we didn't intentionally do this, set it up this way, but we intentionally started getting a different breed every six months because it takes them about six months to start laying and then Mm -hmm. they'll lay you know it depends and opinions vary and um and they may they may lay you know years later but it's not an egg a day you know the the egg a day production is you know about from what we've seen about a year and a half two year window time frame for once they're six months old well we would get a different breed every six months so we could just kind of keep track of how old and as this breed uh, gets to two or three years, and we just kind of let them free range and don't worry, really worry about keeping them caged because uh, 
the the egg they may lay here or there. That's we just call it the dog snacks. <laughs> dog snacks. Yeah, and that's it's it's a good idea to have a diversity of chickens as well. I mean, most of the higher breeding or higher laying chickens will you know do three hundred eggs a year, and what they'll do is that it's it's a cycle of time between each egg that's laid, and that cycle is only really active between sun up and sundown. And so if you've got a, a if if you've got a a twenty eight hour chicken, it's going to lay an egg every twenty eight hours, and then it's going to lay for about five days or six days in a row. And then it's going to pause for a day or two, and then it's going to restart, and it's going to start laying early in the morning. That's kind of how they seem to work. And then you've got 30-hour chickens. I mean, so there's hour chickens, but then it's usually they rate them based on how many eggs per year you're going to get, and you can kind of divide it out on your average eggs you get. Uh, but, you know, if you got four layers, you're going to get probably three eggs, two to three eggs a day. And in our cycle of doing different breeds just to measure their, their age and, and know where we're at in the laying cycle – we ended up with a couple different varieties of bantams, which weren't intentional. They weren't labeled as bantams, which are like mini chickens. And they've got little tiny eggs too. But they are incredible flyers. And they were actually, we didn't keep them for egg production. Uh, but they were just extremely productive out there uh, eating. And they, they were kind of like a guard chicken almost as well. Yeah, they let them roam around the yard and stuff and eating eating uh, eating the bugs and things and kind of keeping keeping things not so tidy maybe but <laughs> well and if if something like a coyote or some intrusion came you know you would see them flush and that would kind of be your warning that hey something's something's stirring up good alert now i haven't heard them as as guard chickens but you know maybe that's a it wasn't noise it was just like the flush cuz they they're they, all running away from it well and they're good flyers so if yeah. you all suddenly see them come up out of the weeds and you've got all these chickens flying it's like okay like, what's going on <laughs> something send out the dog <laughs> <laughs> something's out there well it's it's definitely this time of year we're doing a lot of education people are prepping for their fall and that's kind of what's going on right now and uh for for the mesquite beans as we were talking about before i know there's some classes coming up too around here i know uh, the urban farm will be doing a little bit of a bean uh bean pancake breakfast i think it's it's uh, that'll be coming up here in a few weeks so if you want to try those types of things out, and again, we've also got live classes if you're out in Sierra Vista, you know, there'll be some other classes we'll be doing down in Sierra Vista for those that are wanting to do some homesteading type stuff. You want to check that out. And is that online? That'll be, it. that one's not an online course. That'll be a live and in-person course, but uh, it's, you can go online and find out more about that. Now, do I remember right? You are not to harvest the mesquite bean off the ground. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. You have to spread like sheets down. That's usually the best way, and then you shake the tree and you get a lot of the beans out. Because you want the the naturally dropping beans because they're ripe. And so they're going to not be bitter. They're going to be more sweet. They're going to be more more, uh, productive, ready to to be ground down. But if they're already on the ground, if you are picking them up off the ground, try to get a clean bean. So you're going to look around for holes. So if it's got holes in it, what's likely happened is you've actually got a borer that's inside that thing. And if you go and grind that down, you're just grinding down the bug that's already inside that. And that's probably not the protein source you were looking for. Well, I just wanted to get that out there because I had heard there was actually some fairly unhealthy mold. Mold can also grow on them. That could start growing in there and it wasn't the right thing. So don't – if you're new to mesquite harvesting – don't pick it off the ground. Yep, it should be kind of a yellowish color, like a manila envelope. I mean, that's kind of the color you're looking for, pretty even across it, no black spots or things like that, just to make sure you got an un, 
And the other thing we'll do is sometimes we'll treat them a little bit with some hydrogen peroxide, then re-dry them just to make sure that we've got any of those spores and things kind of mitigated, relatively speaking, uh, before we grind them down if, if we're concerned about that. And when you grind, you grind the husk and everything, or do you actually snap the bean? No, we'll grind the whole thing. It's actually yeah. the husk is the main yeah. part. That's the part you eat. Yeah, you yeah. know, the, if you're trying to just get the seeds on the inside, good luck with yeah, that. that's right. Because those seeds are incredibly hard also and don't have as much of the nutrition value. It's actually the husk where most of that nutrition is. And you need a special grinder for that. If you do, if you got a wheat grinder, you're doing your own flour that's not the same. Don't don't stick the mesquite beans to that. No, I wouldn't recommend it. That'll just gum them up because there's so much protein and it's got a lot of sugars in it and stuff too. So some naturally occurring sugars, it'll actually gum up your your device. And so usually it's more of a an impact grounding grinding type process is the ones that you're, are good out there. Hammer mills are actually really good rather than the grinding type stuff that most people have. Or a matat. A matat? Tell me about a matat. What's a matat? Isn't that what the the old stone? The yeah, there Indian, you go. The yeah, that's the matat. The yeah, the handstone. Yep, yeah. that makes more sense. It's more of that impact type grinding process rather than the spinners. Well, that's a fun chicken sound. Wrapping up our outdoor living hour, we get down to our final segment and uh, online education. You know, you guys have a quite the plethora of resources, and we're getting ready to go into. Uh, you know, I know fall's still a little bit of ways away, and if you're up early in the morning, it doesn't feel like summer out there. But yeah, it, it all it all happens quick. And if you were going to do any this time, you were talking about diversity of food. There's really not a whole lot planting right now. Uh, it's veg- a shorter list. It's definitely a shorter wise. list. But now's a great time to plant your pumpkins if you want pumpkins for Halloween. It's not actually, too late. Not too late. Actually, first week or two of June, you're just going to have to be a little more intentional on the watering. You'll probably have to water it twice a day just to make sure you get the seeds to sprout and keep them alive. But if you put them in a good morning sun, afternoon shade scenario, you're going to have pumpkins for Halloween this year. And what about other melons? We've had real good success with uh, watermelon. Not so much cantaloupe, but uh, our watermelon crops have done great. Watermelons are good. Uh, You're a little late on the getting the watermelon started right now from my experience with it because they'll start cooking. But if you look more into the Crenshaw type, which is like a, a cantaloupe, so Crenshaw or honeydew, those are actually some pretty good varieties that you can still grow, and this is a good time to be planting those and getting those growing as well. And again, I like them if they can get some afternoon shade this late in the season, but you can grow those. Uh, black-eyed peas, another great thing to be growing. Okra, eggplant as transplants. Basil is going to go great through the summer. All things that you can still grow now. And, and in that, I mean, if you're looking for more information on how to grow here in Arizona or elsewhere around the state and stuff, you've got, uh, we've got a lot of resources at agriscaping.com. Join our newsletter. Get a, a free account with our, with our uh, membership. There's a free account where you can get access to a number of past uh, videos and classes that we've done to give you a lot of those tips and tricks to, to make your garden grow better and more beautiful so your neighbors don't worry too much about you. And if you're somebody that leaves for the summer or have extended, uh, whether you've got uh, a northern residence or extended vacations, uh, and coming back, getting your landscape regoing, is there anything that they can be doing right now, like setting out a big pile of mulch and just letting it, you know, naturally compost over the summer for it to 
be ready for them when they get back. That's a good idea. And if you're going to be doing that, trying to build some good soil, uh, I wouldn't go less than a foot deep of com- of uh, compost or chip. No less than a foot. If you do less than a foot, what you're going to be doing is actually cultivating soil that's ready to go a little too early with weed seeds that are going to start sprouting through it. And we don't want that to happen for you. So you're not coming back from your vacay or your your uh, your summer getaways uh, to a bunch of weeds that you also have to harvest out first before you can do any growing. So at least a foot deep of that type of chip mulch or mulch uh, to make sure that that's breaking down. It's amazing how much when something's mulching and getting mulch and they're getting composted you know you, you can start with what you think is a lot of product and then you come back when it's ready for planting you're like Man, i've hardly got anything here i need to do a couple five gallon plants yep that's right i mean you got 12 inches it's going to be about three three inches at the end of the day so it's uh, it's it's one fourth the volume is going to it's going to go down to about one fourth the volume and that's kind of the basic for for a lot of these big chip mulch things that you get going it's kind of the same theory of cooking spinach that's if right you think about it yeah you have this big mound of spinach and then when it's cooked down it's like well, what happened here it's a... <laughs> yep and though we may not advocate putting cooked spinach in your garden we no. do advocate <laughs> for compost that breaks down exactly like that gary you're right you're right I was just say that's about the only thing I I think cooked spinach is good for is composting. <laughs> well, good. Now you know what you're you're going to be using it for. Everything is going to use. It's not just going in the trash. Good thinking, Romy. Good Add thinking. a lot of garlic. That'll change your ways. Yeah, there we go, and that'll help keep the bugs out if you throw that in your compost too. <laughs> now, final thing on weed control. You know, it, a lot of opportunistic seeds out there. I mean, it's it's amazing. There's no way to know just how many are they're just blanketed everywhere. You had a little bit of water and they just start sprouting. How? And you were talking about having a foot of composting to mm-hmm. keep weeds from coming out. What What do you do for weed control once you've already got your garden going? Because it, you know, bird drop, wind, breeze, it's it can take over very quick. Well, I'm a big fan of using flames. I do flame weeding and we'll actually burn off a lot of the 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 little the weed seeds that might be there in the ground before I go and plant, I'll do that. Other things that you can do before you plant is we'll put a little water it and then we'll put some plastic over it for about two weeks, letting the, it kind of makes a greenhouse effect and everything that might be in there is going to sprout. And then you take the plastic off, then you can bring that burning in and then burn those back off. And so it's forcing them to sprout. Now, another way, uh, corn gluten is a good organic way. If you get corn gluten, it's a granular and you can actually throw it down on the ground and it's a natural um, basically, it inhibits the sprouting of the seeds. Uh, and uh, tobacco mulch, that's another one that also naturally inhibits the growth of other seeds. And so there's other ways to do it, too. So why don't you spell the name of your website? Because we've got a texture that doesn't have it right. And it says, it's taking me to some company in Michigan. Well, this isn't Michigan information. This no, is Arizona information. This is Arizona information. Agriscaping.com. A-G-R-I-S-C-A-P-I-N-G.com. And the newsletter's free, the yep. classes online. Yep, a lot of online free classes and stuff. We want to make sure everybody is growing a beautiful, healthy garden. A-G-R-I-S-C-A-P-I-N-G, agriscaping.com.